The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, Robin Aisha Lansong, is a multiple near-death survivor whose experiences opened her creativity and empathic knowing. When Robin was eight years old, an American man abducted her and took her to Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. He eventually abandoned her there, but she was taken in and cared for by the people of a small tribal village. And today, Robin is a visual artist, medicine singer, craniosacral therapist, and health intuitive. She has given over 9,000 healing sessions and lives in the state of Washington. Her beautiful book, Art Inspired by My Death Experience, can be ordered from her website. Robin, welcome to NDE Radio. Hi, thanks, Lee. Great to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. Robin, you had such an intriguing experience early on in your life. Perhaps you could begin there and and, and uh, tell us how that led to your your first NDE Okay, thanks, Lee. Uh, Well, I'll begin my story by just giving some context. I was growing up on the East Coast, and it was 1977 when I was abducted. Um, The kind of circumstances of how that took place is I was growing up in a family who were um, not really capable of protecting me, and I I had some neglect around being uh, kept safe. And so there was a house in our neighborhood that tended to gather unsafe people, and one of the people from that house spotted me and chose me to abduct. And the interesting context that we're still researching right now and don't have confirmation on these details, but it seems it's possible that he was maybe a Vietnam veteran and Mm. some of those people were being uh, recruited to go over and fight in the Rhodesian War for the Rhodesian government side. And so the timing seems to work out that there was an advertisement in Soldier of Fortune magazine um, that was recruiting and kind of saying, come be a man among men and fight with us. And so that came out in the spring of 1977, and I was abducted uh, about a month later in June. And so I was, uh, some of the details about the abduction, I was uh, drugged, and so I don't actually remember um, how he transported me out of the country because I was not conscious. Um, but when I woke up again, I was, uh, on a military base, the abductor was in a military uniform, and and you know as you can imagine, he was quite mentally unwell, and I was in danger, and I I really drew upon my experience of already surviving abuse to really learn how to cope with that situation and kind of handle how to survive in that in that days with him, and. My as best as we can put together, and again, we're going to about to do a return trip to Africa to help us in the research of this. Um, best as I can put together, probably I was with him um, during the time he was in his training, and then I'm surmising that he needed to get rid of me when it came time for him to actually uh, go into the field. So he, I was given to another man, and that man took me on a bus, and the bus actually broke down. Um, very much out in a bush, in a rural area. And 
I had actually been assaulted from the man who abducted me and my ribs were broken. So mm. trying to walk and, and walk and keep up with adults, just I couldn't do it. And so the man who was um, had taken me on the bus, he was trying to kind of push me along and make me go faster, and he pushed on my ribs. So I did what most eight-year-olds would do, and I bit him. And that broke the little bit of, tiny bit of rapport we had, and so he pulled away from me, and he actually walked on and left me behind. So there I am, eight years old, uh, with broken ribs. I don't have food, I don't have water, and I'm left behind out in the bush. And so at that point, I was so bereft and my self-esteem was so low, I thought it would just be mercy to sit down and just wait to die in the sun. And so that's pretty much what I did. I sat down and gave up and waited to not be here anymore. And what happened was uh, a truck full of soldiers came along and they were fully armed and that was... Uh, quite a threat, and I thought, okay, now this is how I'm going to die. Um, but instead of shooting me, they actually picked me up and put me on the truck, and I was very confused why they were doing this. And again, in my research now, what I can put together is there were several parties happening. Um, there was the whole Rhodesian War, Bush War going on, and there were several parties, and one of the middle parties um, was black Africans who were not as extreme and so they might have seen me as a white orphaned child and decided to try and get me to the nearest place of people that might be sympathetic to taking care of me. Uh, and, of course, they needed to conserve their gas. So they didn't want to take me really far. So they took me to the uh, edge of a village and basically dropped me off and pointed the direction of go to the village and then left. And it was getting dark, and I heard barking dogs near the village, so that was, I decided I didn't want to go near the village when I heard the scary dogs there. And I just found a tree to call home, the biggest tree I could find, and kind of tucked myself in the thin roots and called that home for the night. In the morning, I heard the most incredible singing voices coming from the village, and I made my way over to them. And they gave me food and water. And I was very cautious about actually really letting anyone get near me because I didn't want to be trapped or held captive. And But the people of this village were so open-hearted and had such joy in their singing and in their faces that I really trusted that I would be okay. And the real transforming moment for me was when the children really welcomed me in. They gathered around me, and I'm not sure if they'd actually seen a Caucasian person before, but they were touching my hair and touching my skin. And they took me to the fire circle, and one of the girls began to tell a story about me. And it's in uh, not in English, of course. They were all speaking their native language, which is Venda. And, and, they, and she told a creation story, I believe that it was about me arriving to her village. And as they did this, they put ash from the fire circle on my white skin. And by the end of her story, I was welcomed in and they, all the children joined in and putting ash in my hair and ash on my skin and making me look more like them. 
and it was the most incredible, welcoming, and seeing and playful experience of my life. And wow. and to be so kind of bereft and broken from the abduction experience, and then to be welcomed in like this was almost more than I could take in. But I I welcomed their joy and I welcomed their laughter. And what happened next, again, was in a critical moment of beginning to feel alive again. One of the women came and sat down and watched all this, and she began to sing to me and called me over to her. And her singing was so resonant that it was really filling me up and nourishing me from the inside. And again, I was very afraid of adults. I was afraid to be hit or captured. But her presence and her love was so trustworthy that I allowed her to take hold of me. And and her singing was restoring me and healing me. And I literally collapsed forward in her arms. And it was the strongest experience of mothering I'd ever had in my life. So these people welcomed me in and I became part of uh, the dances and the making food. I learned how to plant the seeds to grow food. And it, I, I really felt that I had found family and that I now belonged. And the again, the uh, Rhodesian War was going on. And one day, this kind of very idyllic experience was really broken when uh, the guerrilla soldiers came into the village. And I was immediately hidden. Um, it was a the guerrilla soldiers were, um, the war was about trying to get land back for farming and kind of create equity again because the um, British colonies had taken a lot of the land for farming. And so the yes. guerrilla soldiers were doing very extreme measures to try and get land back. Um, so being a white person there was a very unsafe time. And so I was hidden when they came in, and it really changed the tone of what was happening in the village. Before then, it had felt very safe, and after that, there was a tension. And uh, it was kind of shown to me, don't go beyond the village. We don't know when they'll come back. And several days later, kind of in my child play, and not necessarily really paying attention to how far I'd gone from the village, I went to the river where we often swam. And I was there playing in in my own world. And I heard the sound of the truck across the way. And I looked up, and it was the guerrilla soldiers. And I was by myself, and there was no one there to shelter or hide me. And so I froze like a rabbit, hoping they wouldn't see me. Hmm. And I watched, I remember watching the the truck tire slow down as they were kind of scanning the area. And I saw the eyes of the driver spot me. And he called back to the soldiers in the back. And before I could turn and run, the soldier had brought up his rifle, um, aimed at me. And I really remember the moment where the gun barrel became just a circle. And I knew he was directly lined up at me. And, And the confusion for me to be honored and so loved by the people of the village. And of course, in my eight-year-old mind, I had no idea what the difference was between the black soldiers I was looking at and the people of my village and why he would be aiming a gun at me. 
And so I was in mid-turn when he pulled the trigger, and the bullet grazed the top of my head, and the force of it was enough to knock me off my feet and knock me to the ground. And I began bleeding to death. Um, For those who don't know, uh, a head wound is a place of the body that bleeds very strongly. And, And what happened for me as I was starting to Um, go unconscious from blood loss was that my life force really went out beyond my skin in a wave out beyond my body and rushed back in. It did another wave that went further out and I knew if I didn't gather that back in and even it out of my body that I was dying. And it was beyond my control. It rushed back in And it was like a tsunami wave. It just kind of brought everything that I am with it. And it was like there was an open window in the back of my heart and that my life force just rushed out the back of my heart. And so I had left my body. And what happened next is that I was someplace different. I was no longer by the river. I was no longer with my body. And that I was very confused and very disoriented. And and I felt very scattered. I kind of make the analogy that I was like a bowl of marbles all spread out. And I had no center reference point. And, and so what happened next is I felt touch to my cheek. And then I could even identify that I, oh, I have a face. And this touch was feminine and loving. And it gathered back in my sense of self and a sense of place and some sense of form. I can't say I felt like I had a body because I felt so light. And I thought, I've kind of become like Casper the ghost. And this and the touch kind of t- um, was on the other side of my face and that gathered me back together more and I could see again. And I could see her face and she was dark-skinned. And in my mind, she was made of earth and brown earth. And... When I was able to reorient even a little bit more, I felt like she, I recognized her as like a sister that had always been there to welcome me back in the times I had come to this place before. And and her touch helped me forgive myself because I felt like it was my fault for getting shot, that I had gone out of the village and that I'd made a mistake and it was my fault. And with her touch, I knew that I wasn't my mistakes and that I could forgive myself for going outside of the village. And and I could now see beyond her and that it was her sister was also there. And the two of them had always been there to welcome me when I had come home to this place. And I was beginning to realize I was free of my body and I had come home to where I had been originally created. And they pointed their arms over and I saw a huge golden sphere. And I knew if I stepped inside that golden sphere, I would be fully restored, I would be renewed, and all all my injuries would be gone and I would be fully refreshed and it would never diminish this golden sphere. And so I began moving with them towards the golden sphere but then I remembered my, the people of my village and how they had 
named me, giving me a naming ceremony. And I finally had family. I finally had people in place. And I didn't want to leave them. And I knew if I stepped in that golden sphere, I wouldn't be able to go back to them. So I hesitated, and I had a dilemma. And I really, my longing to be back with the people of my village turned me away from that sphere and even drew me away from my two sisters that were there to welcome me. And and so this draw to be with them kind of drew me away from that scene, and I had this sense of falling backwards. And I fell backwards away from that warmth and that brilliance and that light and away from my two big sisters. And I felt like there was curtains uh, kind of softening my fall backwards. And when I landed, I was in a different place. And it was kind of dank and overcast and wet, sort of like a, like a, maybe a cold day in Ireland. And, and I was in a stone stairway, a very old stone stairway, and it was kind of, the stone was cold and it was, um, there was moss and it was very moist. And I had trouble getting up because it was slippery. And there was a stairwell off to my right, and so many people had walked down that stairwell that the stones were worn down in the center. And I didn't know where I was or how I'd gotten there. And then suddenly there was an old man next to me, and he was offering his arm to help me up. And I, I just felt very resistant to needing his help, and I wanted to be independent, and I wanted to be able to get up on my own. And I tried several times, but I felt very weak and kind of shaky and so I went ahead and accepted his help to get up and he was far sturdier than I imagined he would be when I was just looking at him he kind of looked like he was on death's door but he helped me up and he encouraged me that we were going to go down these other set of stone stairs and I didn't know where we were going but I trusted that he did and so I went with him down these stone stairs and there was something that was dripping on my shoulder. And I wiped to see what it was. And I held up my hand and I could see my own blood. And I realized I was bleeding to death from my head. And I showed it to him. And he, he wasn't alarmed. He knew. And he said, you know, kind of it encouraged him to um, help me down the stairs faster. And so I continued on with him. And then we got to a stone archway. And it was dark inside this uh, archway. It looked like we were entering into a cave. And I, and I thought to myself, wow, I really had it better when I was up in that kind of light with my two sisters. It was brilliant. It was warm. And now here I am going into this dark cave. But, but he really encouraged me, and I was uh, holding on to his arm. So he led me into this dark cave. And, and what was there was, uh, I, again, I was eight years old, so my life review didn't have a lot of history to it. But having survived a lot of abuse at that point, what was in that cave was the sound of my own repressed emotion from the abuse that I had survived. And what started happening is that I heard my own screaming bouncing off the walls in that cave. And I started having images of the adults who had abused me to my life in that point. And I wanted to run, but he held me steady. 
And I looked into his face, and he was the presence of steadiness and calm. And in myself, I had tremendous fear of seeing these abusers' faces and hearing my own screams. And I realized he wasn't trying to fix the situation for me. And and what I was healing in that moment is the, as many children do who are abused, that I thought there was something so bad in me that made the adults abuse me. And looking in his eyes, I realized there was nothing wrong with me and that I that there wasn't my fault that these adults had abused me. And when I had that realization, the screaming stopped. And I accepted that I was scared by them, and I, and I did want to scream, and that I was okay. I wasn't wrong for being abused, and I wasn't wrong for having a reaction to the abuse. And from there, he continued to lead me through the dark cave, and we came out to a, a cliff edge, And in that opening, the night sky was so filled with stars. They were like living relatives filling the sky. And I could feel my relationship and his relationship to all those stars. And again, I had a sense of place and a sense of belonging. And my trust in him at this point was so strong, I would follow him wherever he led. And so telepathically, I asked him, where are we going next? And he nodded his head that we're we're going to jump off this cliff edge. And I put my hands in his, and together we left, left off that cliff edge. And the falling was gentle. It was like we became birds with wings. And I suddenly realized that he could go anywhere and that he chose to come be with me to lead me through my dark cave and that in my Buddhist language he was a bodhisattva who came to guide me through my suffering and to help me make meaning of it so I didn't get lost in trying to avoid it. And we continued falling like birds and my trust in him was continuing to grow and and telepathically directly in my heart he spoke and he said to me, this is dying this gentle following, this being in relation to the stars, this feeling of belonging to the whole universe. This is dying. And we continued to fall down, and it became morning sky. And there again was the golden sphere. And I I looked across there, and I knew I could go there. But I instead, and he... He trusted my path, and he uh, was going to just trust me to go on my own way. And uh, and instead of going to the golden sphere, I went to a field of grass. And again, I was seeking to find my African family, which I was not able to. And in that field, I met uh, what I call my royal shepherd. And he was the presence of peace. And in his presence, I could resolve my longing for my African family. And he showed me in a vision that we are all connected and that we're, there are living lines connecting every person. 
And from there, we went and uh, through, went through a tunnel, and I viewed my body from above. We came out from that tunnel, and I was above the scene where I was dying. And the woman who had become like my mother, my mommy Etan, had found my body and was rocking my body and singing, and I was viewing the scene from above. And my love for her was absolute, and I wanted to comfort her and tell her I was okay, and I was fully taken care of by all these beings, and I was going to journey onward to the great heart and go home to my original source. So I journeyed on further to the great heart and was becoming more peaceful and more purified and any hurts or injuries were fully being cleared from my body and my presence. But she had begun to sing to me and she was singing a calling song and that was making it through the veils that had been closing behind me between the, you know, this land where of the living and where I was on the other side of the veil. And her song was so strong, and she had called on the ancestors to remind me of my purpose. And so I was crossing forward into freedom from pain, going home to my original source, and her song found me. And when her song reached me, it reminded me that I am also a medicine singer. I am also to sing my healing song to others, and that I hadn't done my purpose. And when that song touched me, I had a choice. I could continue on to the great heart and be reunified with my original source, or I could turn around and come back and live my purpose to sing my medicine songs as she was doing for me. And so my desire to be part of the choir of medicine singers turned me around, and I came, came back to physical life. And... You know, as I came back, I questioned my choice because I began to feel the physical pain of having been shot. But I came back to my body, and she held me strong, and I was returned back to the village. And uh, what happened next is uh, is a painful part of the story. That um, just several days after the after my return when I was still physically recovering, that the guerrilla soldiers came back and they attacked my village. And in my attempt to escape, um, because I was still recovering, I actually, um, just the act of running, I collapsed, which in the end may have saved my life because I was already down while the shooting was happening. And so I um, didn't no longer look like a living target. And I am not actually sure how many people of my village survived um, because I was unconscious and people from a, um, we're still doing kind of research to uh, clarify all this understanding. But the best as we know from the research we have now, um, people from a nearby village found me unconscious, um, took me and cared for me. And knowing that I was very unsafe being there, they took me across the river to um, get me out of Rhodesia and to the South African side and gave me to some white farmers who they thought could do a better job of getting me back to the U.S. Um, From there, I was hospitalized in a whites-only hospital in South Africa, 
And then from there, I was returned to the U.S. And we are doing our first return trip, my first return trip in 40 years. Yes, tell us, uh, tell our audience about that and, and how they can actually help you uh, get back there. Yeah, so we want to do research to kind of retrace my steps, have it prompt memory of location and the history. And so we have a range that we have are doing our first, my first return trip to um, now Zimbabwe in 40 years. And people can um, could really join that journey and get updates by going to my website, which is robinlandsong.com. That's uh, Robin like the bird and Landsong, which is what I do, uh, .com. And there they can sign up at the bottom of every page. There's a sign up to join the journey by we'll give you updates. Um, through the newsletter. And if people are moved, um, they could also help us out by donating to the actual expenses of the trip, the flight, and the, um, we're going to be trying to document this with filming and um, the research, and we're hiring people to help us in the research. So we, um, I'm really appreciative of everyone who has donated so far. And we're about 50% to our goal. We're about $5,000, and our goal is $10,000. And that's funding yeah. both John and I to get there. And it's only about a month and a half from now, so uh, it would yeah. be great if people could get on it. And when they go to your website, is that a place where they could find your book as well? Uh, yes. Right now I have an art book um, that's the drawings. I've done drawings of my death experience. Amazing and drawings. They're just they're just incredible. And then um, you tell the story, too, in the, in the back of the book. Uh, yeah. So right now I have a brief um, summary. Um, I've written a full account that's going to be a full book. Um, and I have a agent, and we're working on finding a publisher. And so hopefully mm. that um, full book will include the color art also. And if people are right now kind of in the intermediate before the full book does come out, um, there's a, a buy art tab where people can look through all my art. And if they're moved, they can order some. Um, and if they also want to, the book actually isn't um, directly, like there isn't a link to buy that. But if they want to email through me through the contact, then I can mail them the art book right now. That's, that's great. Robin, yeah. we're out of time. But I want to thank you so much for telling your story. And I yeah, hope uh, people will help sponsor your trip back to Africa. Yeah, um, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Thank you, Robin Lansong, for sharing your NDE experience with us today. If the audience would like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the work of IANS, check out that website, iands.org. And we're having a conference in Denver, and Robin will be there. So that's something to think about as well. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.